Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. This episode, we have a conversation with Hunter Newby, who is best known for being the founder of Telex back in 1998. He gives us some pretty awesome stories about the experience getting that business up and running in New York City back in 98 and and what he was doing prior to founding Telex and what he's been involved with post-Telex. We have some very interesting uh, and informative conversations. It was very informative for me, at very least, um, as to the interconnection facilities themselves, what makes them so important, um, why it is that OpenIX hasn't become the new, new thing in the marketplace, and get into the technical specifics as to why it is so difficult to just create a brand new interconnection play within a new major tier one market. Uh, so some fun conversations, some great stories from the man, the myth, the legend, Hunter Newby, uh, and very informative content here coming up. Hope you enjoy the conversation with Hunter Newby. Hunter Newby, how are you? Thank you for joining me on the I Love Data Centers podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. For those who don't know who the heck you are, which... Very few people in this industry don't know who you are. You've, you've done a very good job of self-promotion over the last 15 years as you know, I've, I've learned a lot watching you <laughs> do what you do in the marketplace. Where are you now? And you know, just some brief highlights as to what your background is. Sure. Great. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for watching my stuff and listening over the years. Um, briefly, I don't know how far back to go, but I, I got into the industry in telecom, generally well, speaking. Before you go into that, where where are you? Like, are you, you're in New York, but where in New York? Where are am you? I physically, like geographically? Yeah. Well, Lido Beach, Long Island. Yeah, that's where I live. Gotcha. And where yeah. where is Lido Beach, Long Island for those who are? Uh, it's in New York, um, South Shore. I live on the Atlantic Ocean, sort of between JFK Airport and Jones Beach. Um, little town called Lido Beach. It's on a barrier island. There's only four towns on the island that I live in, um, but I can get into New York City in 45 minutes, and I live at the beach. So, and I get to JFK, I drive there through cargo, and you know, past the FedEx, I get there in about 20, 25 minutes. So it's a great spot. Nice. Okay, so thank you for thank you for that. And then where? So <laughs> where'd you come from? All right. So where'd I come from? I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I lived in Brazil for a couple years in the 70s when I was a kid. Wait, what? Um, yeah. What I were you doing in Brazil? Brazil? 
Tom Paulo. My father uh, opened um, Caterpillar Tractors manufacturing facilities down there, um, originally as a consultant um, to Caterpillar when the U.S. imposed the tax on um, tires imported from uh, Brazil, and and then they decided to uh, it was a rubber, and then they decided to manufacture the tires in Brazil, and then they said, well. My dad said, if you're going to build the plants and manufacture the tires, you might manufacture the whole tractor down there. And they loved the idea so much that they hired him to do it, which, you know, as a consultant, he doesn't actually do what he tells them that they should do, right? So that changed his life and ours a bit. So we relocated the family. Um, Well, he did. (laughs) I lived there. I was a kid. I went to an international school and spoke Portuguese and stuff. Um, Yeah. So I lived in Rio and in Sao Paulo in the 70s, 74 to 76. Good times. Uh, anyway, moved back to Philly. And then in 1994, after I graduated from Drexel University of Philadelphia, I moved to New York the week the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. And I was there at Penn Station, basically, in the neighborhood when the Rangers won Game 7 beat Vancouver. And I was like, all right, this is cool. I'm staying. So I never went back to Philly. And I was living out on Long Island with uh, one of my fraternity brothers in a rented apartment, and I just, I've just i been here ever since. I've actually lived in New York now longer than I've lived anywhere else. I guess that technically makes me a New Yorker. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. I didn't know you wanted to know the personal side, but there you no, go. No, I definitely do. So that's, that's I, I got a, a couple more personal questions. So are you um, an only child, or do you have siblings? No, I have siblings. Older sister, year and a half older, and a younger brother uh, who's about eight years younger than me. Uh, and they both live in PA, and my mom and dad are still alive, and they both live in PA, just different parts outside of Philly, uh, mostly, you know, suburbs of Philly. So what what got you, given you've made a career in data centers and technology, what, what got you initially interested in in tech? Was, were you involved, or did, was your dad bringing computers home, or what? How did you start to get exposed to it? Okay, that's an interesting question. Yeah, so my dad, he's been a management consultant. He's retired now. He was a management consultant his whole career. So he was exposed to a lot of different companies and businesses, and he would do, you know, um, analysis on different companies to help them understand basically how they can operate more efficiently, cost-effectively, increase productivity, and ultimately improve the bottom line. Um, and he dealt with CEOs and CFOs exclusively uh and then he would implement all this stuff he did jobs for all kinds of companies iowa beef um you know fedex he opened fedex in europe uh you know when fedex was a concept that nobody knew what it was was he working for like an accenture or mckinsey or one of those he actually he actually worked for alexander proudfoot which back in the 70s was a really big consulting firm and then he uh the last big branding consulting firm he worked for was coopers and library you know but he had his own he had his own companies during that time period as well. You know, I guess being exposed to business in that way through him and just hearing him on the phone. And I actually traveled with him a couple of times and sat in on some of these meetings and, you know, just got a sense of how he operated. You know, and he was just a machine. He didn't stop working. He was a 24-7 person for years, like for 40 years, <laughs> um, which is Okay, good and bad, rough on the family, but you know, from a from a work ethic perspective and productivity perspective as an individual, he just he had a lot of output for one person with, you know, so, so many hours in the day. And I was exposed to a lot of different companies. 
and businesses and, and how they functioned. Um, and he was basically not, not necessarily a turnaround guy, but uh, go in and figure out what was wrong and fix it. Um, you know, just to improve margins, like, like I said, and I learned a lot about inefficiencies, I guess, as I look back on it now and where he would find things. And it could be anything in, in business process. It could have been in, um, you know, a production line. It could have been in energy savings. It could have been in anything. The fact that they weren't marketing their product correctly, whatever. I heard all the stories. And uh, he had some really amazing success stories for jobs that he did for different companies that resulted in, you know, fantastic results uh, for them. So anyway, he also was uh, a hack scientist. <laughs> and I say hack in a very kind and, and uh, generous way. He was totally um, engaged in astronomy and physics. Um, those were probably his two favorites. And you know, he had theories on uh, cancer and on dreams and on evolution that he wrote whole papers on. And he wasn't even, you know, doing that for anything or anyone in particular. And I read a lot of that stuff growing up. And of course, in my house, we had the Harvard Classics, so that was like my casual reading. Right? <laughs> I would Did read Voltaire and you know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get any of his stuff published? You know, I don't know. Um, I don't know if he. I don't. No, I don't think so. He's a Korean War vet. I could tell you that about him as well. So he got a lot of his history from there, and um, he actually still to this day speaks and reads and writes Korean. And he's in his eighties, um, and you wouldn't think it, you know, just being a guy from Philly, but. Uh, I don't know that he ever actually went so far as to publish any of his um, his science work. I'll have to ask him that question. But he did do work with the University of Pennsylvania. It's funny. This is a funny story. As a kid growing up in our house, you know, we had a wood shop. My dad had a wood shop. So I learned how to build furniture from a very young age. I built a lot of things, actually, tables. And I built a bar once when I was 10, um, cabinets, all sorts of things. We had um, a radial arm saw, band saw, lathe. Uh, table, the uh, tabletop sander, um, you know, routers would do tongue and groove work, you know, everything. He used to do these experiments. So we built this whole contraption. My father wanted to uh, determine if there was a sixth force. And this is back in 1980-ish, 81, two maybe. So um, in our living room, we had a big A-frame uh, living room, giant, you know, 50 by 50 living room. It was a house that we designed and built. And in the A-frame, there was a balcony. And uh, my dad, in, in trying to discover the sixth force, which is actually a force he believed that repelled objects, so it worked against gravity, um, he went to the University of Pennsylvania and he borrowed an atomic clock that measured time to, like, the billionth of a second. <laughs> I don't even know anybody that could go to the University of Pennsylvania and borrow a clock, but he did. And we brought it to our house, and he took apart um, one of our washing machines to get a switch and he pulled the switch out of the washing machine and he built this whole thing with a gate and there was a rope tied to the beam of the A-frame to a test tube and he had different physical material in the test tubes. Uh, lead was one and feathers was another and I don't remember what the other ones were. And basically the switch would open the gate and the material would fall and it would hit another gate and the clock would start and stop based on opening and closing the switch. And, uh, you know, we opened it with our switch and then the test tube would hit the other one and, and stop the clock. And he was trying to measure uh, in this environment um, if denser material would take longer to fall than less dense material that weighed the same. Um, 
It's fascinating. So, you know, you're, you're saying, where did I get my interest yeah. in solving problems and science and such? Um, nobody's ever asked me that. So that was interesting. And I'm just recollecting that. How, I can tell you probably you? more stories. Um, I was probably 11 when my dad was doing that. He was keeping me up till midnight, one o'clock in the morning on school nights to do these things at home. And this wasn't like normal stuff that you could go out and tell people, you know, this is what my dad's doing. But, uh, and it is, his theory on black holes was always fascinating. And one of the things I've, I always remember how interesting was when he would talk to me about black holes uh, and Einstein's theories. And, and years and years later, so much of that stuff now has been published. That's actually published. Um, I think he did send his theory on dreams to someone. I'm going to have to ask him that. I'll get back to you on it. But anyway, yeah, his, his love for physics and science in general certainly bled, you know, into me. Um, you know, and in the 80s, telecom was nothing like it is today, of course, with um, the consent decree and then the 96 Telecom Act, all that stuff so what, hadn't even happened. So. When did you get your first experience with a computer? And was it one of the um, old university computers or did you actually have a laptop or, or desktop? So my first computer was when I was a freshman at Drexel University in 1988. I was 17 when I started college. And Drexel was one of two schools in the whole country that um, that it was mandatory to own a computer. Um, and it was Drexel and Northeastern, I believe, were the two schools that made it mandatory at the time that I was aware of. And they made us all buy Macs. So I had a Mac, Macintosh SE, um, two floppy drives, no hard drive. And <laughs> I remember picking up the system folders that were all these little cassettes, you know, the, the floppies. and. Uh, Man, you know, they weighed a ton. Like when you put them all together, you needed so many disks to just boot up Word or whatever. Um, and then eventually I went and bought an external hard drive, a 20 meg external hard drive. And I drove down to Delaware to buy it to save money on the sales tax. And it was like $734 for a 20 meg hard drive. But hey, then I needed, I didn't need the system folder to boot up an application. Um, and I, I used Word then and um some of the other you know excel and and some of the other programs that I, I remember distinctly um playing risk all the time on that computer and it was black and white by the way and my brother has it he took it because he was like my god that's so cool it's it's retro so it's in good hands um, but yeah that was my first computer so when was the first time you walked into a data center then well they weren't called data centers back then um so yeah, I started, I was saying a little bit before, I started working um, in telecom, let's call it officially, in 96. And I started working for LDDS WorldCom. Uh, so LDDS was the company that acquired all the other companies. Um, so when I was there, they just closed on the acquisition of MFS and UUNet when I started. And then I was there for about two years and I left right after the MCI acquisition. And I'd say that the first time I ever set foot in, I'll call it a colo, because it wasn't really a data center, um, was during my time at WorldCom. And I don't know exactly when, but I do know this. I learned uh, about the public internet and what it was and how it was built and how it worked and all the basic protocols um, you know, from UUNet engineers so basically, there was a pit, it was called, and it was somewhere down in Virginia. I forget where, wherever UUNet had an office at the time, might have been like Vienna or Fairfax or something. 
and you could call them and they would answer your questions. And I called so many times that I pretty much got to know everybody on a first name basis. I was that like annoying guy from New York and I figured out what the internet was in a few months. Um, and then I started to train all the people in the Long Island and New York offices. I actually remember holding training meetings where there were hundreds of people, even managers and VPs came to my training where I was, you know, I would just stand up in the front with a whiteboard and draw out, you know, ask everybody to ask me one question, like what is a router and what's BGP and what's OSPF. And I would answer, go back and answer all of them so that everybody would learn at the same time. And during that time, I went to, I was originally in sales and I ended up doing sales engineering um, and working a lot with the provisioning group. Anyway, that was the part of the story that, Work, ended up working with the sales and the provisioning group, but like as a de facto role and the data group, I worked on the international uh, frame relay services over what was then the Gemini submarine system. And I mean, we're literally talking about a group of people inside of WorldCom, which is a big company that you didn't, nobody even knew who they were, that they existed. Like it was such a small group and the data group, even back then in the late nineties was, they were considered, you know, super smart and, and like, you know, mystic almost. And it was because of that that I was I'd spent time with in WorldCom with the provisioning people that I was tracking down circuits that could never get installed. They were always just in the queue forever and uh the FOC dates, the, the firmware commitment dates that for delivery would always come and go. And that's the bane of telecom, right? Provisioning. No but you could sell anything on paper, but nobody could deliver anything. And they couldn't deliver it because no one knew you know, the secrets of the systems, only the provisioners and then the the actual engineering people knew where everything was. So I questioned that. I was like, well, I don't get it. You know, why, why does this just keep getting pushed back and back and back? And everyone just kind of shrugs their shoulders and well, you know, there's nothing we can do. So I went into the provisioning system. Um, it was called F&E, uh, Facilities and Engineering that WorldCom used. And I tracked down where all these circuits were coming from. And these were all, you know, local loop T1s and stuff back in the day. And these were a lot of circuits that I had sold uh, that I just couldn't get paid on because they could never get installed and therefore could never get billed and could never get collected. So I couldn't make any money, nor could anybody else around me. And I tracked where these circuits were coming from and they were all coming from the same building in New York. That's where they were all getting held up. You know, they, the z was wherever the customer was, but the a basically, where the circuit was generated from, um, was 60 Hudson Street. And I was like, well, I got to go down there. So I remember asking people in my office about it out on Long Island, and they were like, oh, no, you can't go there. That's the pop. No one's allowed to go there. It sounded like the Wizard of Oz. Like, you can't go there. <laughs> you can't talk to the Wizard. It's crazy. It's the Emerald City. Yeah, and I was like, well, I'm going. So I went down there. So hold on, hold on, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. It, we're going to get to that story because that's going to start you on a whole different tangent. But that's so that's the first data center that you went into was was 60 Hudson. Oh, yeah. OK, absolutely. OK, so back up for me, back up for me before you even started working for MCI WorldCom and whatnot. Like why what got you on the route to go there? Like why why not go become a. A, a hedge fund manager or a, you know, a VC or, or whatever, given the, the background that you had when you were in school? That's a good question. I mean, I was introduced to someone who said, hey, you're a smart guy. You should go check out this company, um, WorldCom. Their, you know, CEO is saying that their stock's going to be a hundred bucks. And that would, that was Bernie Ebers <laughs> telling people that. And 
I was like, okay. And I went and I was introduced to someone through a, a mutual friend. And I went to meet this, this person, this woman, just to find out more about WorldCom because I didn't know anything about it. And at the end of just sitting down talking with her, having a coffee, she was like, so do you want the job? And I was like, what do you mean the job? She's like, well, this is an interview and, you, you know, you'd be perfect here. And I'm like, I didn't know this was good. And it just kind of happened um, that way. I was, I was curious um, relative to networks and, you know, I just see patterns and things and everything, I guess, from nature and science, biology, chemistry, physics, it's all the same. So I see the same thing in networks and the patterns all play out. So that was, just, that was intriguing to me um, as opposed to anything else that I was looking at at the time. I mean, I guess, you know, algorithm trading and stuff like that, you see patterns in that too, but that wasn't anywhere near as developed then as it is today. So that's how I just got started. Okay. And then right. everything so, else, everything else kind of clicked. All right. So, so you say, Hey, I'm going to go to the Emerald city and I'm going to pull back the curtain and see what the hell's going on. Yeah. So I went down to 60 Hudson street and just walked in back then there was no security. And I went uh, to the <laughs> elevators. It's a beautiful building. It's one of my favorite the art deco brick. It's Gothic. It's great. I went to the fourth floor where the, uh, the world comp pop was. I walked down the hall and there's this big door and there's like a keypad um, next to the door that somebody took a ball peen hammer to and had the door propped open with a cinder block. So there you go. Um, obviously, there's a lot of text coming and going and nobody knew the code. So they just put an end to that. And I went in and it was a giant room, um, 10,000 square feet at least, and rows and rows and rows and rows of equipment. And it was mostly, you know, old DAXs and stuff, right? Um, T1 DAXs, a lot of M13s, but there was um, the there's a T-DAX, there's a Tatter in there, I remember, and there were uh, there were Titans, and then there was a bunch of rows where there was other kinds of equipment, and every kind of equipment that was in there was all these different companies that WorldCom had acquired, and uh, there were different groups of people huddling around this equipment, and they all looked like different clans of cavemen. And they didn't talk to each other and nobody talked to you. Like I walked and tried to make eye contact. No one even looked at me. <laughs> so I was like, this place is weird. I'm like, who runs this place? Who do you work for? Like they, no one would even want to talk to me. I finally found somebody to work for Wellcom. It was a, you know, the, the main guy, the main engineering guy there that did all the circuits and stuff. And I said, hey, I'm from Wellcom. This is my name. He's like, what are you doing here? I came down here to figure out where this circuit was. And I had my circuit ID and all that. And I made him look it up. And he told me that, uh, you know, it was like real deep in the provisioning queue. I said, yeah, I figured that. I said, but I need to get the circuit turned up. The customer's been waiting for months and they're really upset at me and I need an answer. And nobody will give me an answer because nobody, I guess, came down here to find you. But, you know, what's going on? And he tried to explain to me about how they needed to get another card in, in, the, in, the, in the MUX and the DAX and it's got to be connected and we need to create a DS3. It made it like it's a big thing. I said, well, show me how to do it. I'll do it. He laughed. Ha ha, you can't do it. I said, show me how I'll do it. What do I have to do? So then like five minutes later, I'm putting BNC connectors on coax cable with this crimper. Um, he showed me how to use it. I'm like, he showed me how to like measure out the cabling and whatever. And I made him do it. I was like, listen, I'll buy you lunch if you turn my circuit up today. Okay. And uh, that worked. And I figured out how to get circuits turned up is to spend time at 60 Hudson Street, get to know the techs and buy him lunch. And that turned out to be a really great move um, because I was doing a lot of international wholesale arbitrage at the time for WorldCom, which they sort of frowned upon that it was, it was good cash flow when they needed it. 
Um, and there were companies like PTI, which is very famous up here um, for international wholesale and others. And I was selling to them basically. Um, and then through that, I met international wholesale arbitrage people that were in the calling card business. And I ended up joining with them, uh, which was the predecessor company to Telex. I was going to run all their sales and do all their provisioning and, and whatnot. And um, I decided to leave WorldCom and go to work uh, with those guys. And then from that, we formed Telex, um, which was actually originally it was called Telex Communications Corp., which was a 214 wholesale arbitrage business and calling card business. And then um, we folded that up and created Telex Group, Inc. in 2000, which was the real estate, the colo business. And, um, you know, the, the predecessor company sort of incubated uh, the colo business, which really I focused on, you know. I saw the need to resolve physical air interconnection problems within 60 Hudson Street uh, because of all of the disparate IXCs that were on different floors and in different rooms. They all needed LEX to connect to each other in the same building, which I thought was ludicrous. Um, so I decided to become that physical point in the building where all the networks came to to connect to each other, and I could just manage it on a physical layer, cross-connect basis. That did not exist before we did it. And I had to actually sit down and think about it really hard for like two weeks. And then from that, I formulated everything. Uh, I, I drew out what the floor would look like and where the meet me area for the patch panels would be and what the product names were and the pricing, and I created all the order forms um, for colo, for home runs, for panels, for power, for cross-connects, for, for POEs, for conduit, you know, riser conduit. Um, everything was a different tab in an Excel spreadsheet. Funny enough, that was, those are the same forms that the company used for 10 years. Um, anyway, that's a short version, trying to pack it all in here, um, so how what, I got into the building and then transitioned to Telex. But what did it take to get Telex up and running back then, like the cap from a capital perspective, from a personnel perspective, like did you bootstrap this thing? Did you did yes. you get fine? Like how how did you make it happen? It was always bootstrapped. Um, the first institutional money we took in is when we sold the company to GI Partners. Funny. Um, I mean, well, we acquired Fifty Six Marietta Street in May of '04. We used um, you know bank debt for that. Like you know, Lehman came in. Uh, as a mezzanine piece behind uh, iStar. So I guess that's institutional, but from the very beginning, we just bootstrapped it. And it literally, like I said, it, it emerged from a, a voice arbitrage business. And the voice arbitrage business was what was generating the, the buy side demand that I leveraged to dictate to the carriers how they had to come into my room. You know, look, it was a wild west back then. Right. When a carrier, when you ordered a circuit, they, I mean, they literally just came in the room however they could. They would pull bricks out of the wall. They would drop the cable in through the ceiling and then a mux would appear on the floor one day. And it was no rhyme or reason, haphazard. And I had to, you know, corral that. I had to rein that in. So I created rules and it was, you know, tough to, uh, first of all, come up with them because they were, you know, developing, evolving over time. It was even more difficult to enforce them. Um, you know, a lot of these these outside plant network guys, I mean, they just come in and they're like, yeah, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. You can't tell me I can't do it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to put this here and I'm going to do that. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. You're going to do it like this. And to at least get the first few carriers to abide by our rules, set the precedent for the others that they had to. And that was one of the most challenging things to do. 
you know, to, to really carve the whole thing out of stone and, and make it um, be the way that it had to be. Like, these are the rules with no, you know, with no precedent, with no prior um, entity anywhere having done this um, in this way, not only in 60 Hudson in New York, but anywhere. And it was happening in other places in the world, like in San Francisco, Jay Adelson and Bill Norton started Equinix, and they were doing pretty much the same thing. And down in Philly, uh, Jim Laven had started switching data at 401 North Broad, and he was doing basically the same thing. But we didn't know each other at that point. We met each other along the way. Um, but there wasn't some room where we all got together and master planned how it was going to go. We all kind of came up with our own designs and our own rules, you know, out of necessity. Um, and, you know, eventually realized that we all ran similar businesses just in different places. And um, that's, that's how Telex started. That's crazy. So what, from a time frame perspective, what years were you just in the early days of, of kickstarting Telex? 98 to 2000 was still the um, voice arbitrage business. And that's when we had the Colo on the 23rd floor at 60 Hudson, which is the small one. Most people don't even remember that. That was the 7,000 square foot one. Um, and then we took half of the ninth floor uh, from XO. And, or no, sorry, we took half of the ninth floor from the Department of Buildings. They, there was like an office there. We gutted it and we built it out in sections. That started in 2000. And then we took over the other half of the ninth floor, which was XO. And that was probably 2004, I'm guessing. I don't remember exact year. They had built out a whole big, you know, 30,000 square foot room. And they had like eight cabinets in it. <laughs> and I kept saying to the guy that worked there, Paul Cruz, I'm like, we'll just take this over from you. And he's like, no, 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 it's valuable. And then one day he's like, okay. After we were full busted at the seams, and I think we filled up that half of the ninth floor in less than a year. Anyways, it was all piecemeal. Gone. So how piecemeal. how did the bust of <laughs> two thousand the 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 um yeah the the bust of two thousand one like the the bubble bursting in two thousand one did that affect your business in any no. way shape or form? No, it didn't. And that's you know I I knew something was different about core network interconnection than hosting which is the same today as saying meet me rooms and carrier hotels versus data centers. And, you know, core network interconnection to me was, you know, physical fibers connecting disparate networks at their core, right? There were no ancillary network elements necessarily in our room. I didn't, I didn't seek them, um, you know, back in the old web hosting days. You could think of a few like Exodus and some of the other ones. We weren't doing that at all. And I focused very much on subsea. And I just thought about it. I'm like, well, what's the ratio of networks, you know, and what's the relative value? Like if there's this certain kind of network like ISPs and there were a thousand of them, is they're not relatively speaking, not that valuable as opposed to submarine cable systems, which at the time there were only seven in the North Atlantic. So I focused on getting all seven of them in my room directly. And I did. So the first was Deutsche Telekom, and that was really our anchor customer. So that I I created that relationship. Um, I signed them up for a single rack, believe it or not. And then where it got back to Frankfurt, that they secured new space in 60 Hudson Street, and they came back to us and said that they wanted 2,000 square feet. And then they took another 2,500 square feet on top of that. And, I mean, it put us on the map and literally put us on the subsea network map because they terminated uh, TAP-14 in our room. And I knew that by having 
access to TAP14, by controlling access to TAP14, facilitating it, anybody buying subsea capacity on TAP14 was going to come out uh, from the European side in the U.S. They were going to come out in my room. And anybody that needed to connect to TAP14 from the U.S. side to get to Europe was going to have to go through my room. And that worked like a charm. And um, right after that, I went after everybody. You know, I just did my homework. I went after the Apollo uh, system, which we got sort of vis-a-vis as a referral from TAP14 um, because Apollo was built to back up TAP14 in case it ever went down. Um, so we had DMARCs. Um, well, I had TAP14's core equipment inside the room, and then Apollo moved in. They actually moved out of the old cable and wireless U.S. space when C&W U.S. went bankrupt. Um, and then, you know, everybody, Tyco submarine, um, I got them. The, the flag system, I had them extend fiber in. Uh, so basically, I could do handoffs uh, to any of the systems, and then it ended up with um, Hibernia Atlantic. That was the last one to come in of the original group. Um, and we were the only place and still, you know, arguably, I mean, I have to go do my homework on 111 and 8th and stuff, but the only, it was the first and only for a very long time place that you can connect to all seven major transatlantic systems in the North Atlantic in one room. And when I thought about that, as great as it was from an efficiency and economy scale perspective, which is what this whole business is about, proximity drives, you know, efficiencies and economies of scale. And I also realized that, you know, being successful in creating that was also succeeding in creating the largest single point of failure on the East Coast. Uh-huh. And it really concerned me. Um, and then September 11th happened. And then uh, it really, really concerned me. Um, because that those thoughts that I had, um, unfortunately, became very real and vivid before my eyes. And, uh, you know, that made me think about a whole lot of stuff. Um, but from a network perspective, it started me on a path of thinking about how to create physical diversity um, so as that we're not all, you know, reliant, not all FX and bond trading and everything that happens through that building is reliant on four manholes. Um, it's got to be more spread out than that. So I've started other facilities, you know, later after I exited Telex, create that physical um, diversity so that, you know, one site doesn't get hit and everything goes down. Um, but anyways, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a big part of the beginning. Um, and, and certainly focusing on submarine cable systems got us all of the, you know, let's call it type two capacity buyers over those systems, of which there were many. And they all came into a colo space with us. And my original model, just for the record, because some people aren't in this business long enough to remember, but the original Telex model that I created for the Meet Me area was that we did not charge a monthly recurring cross-connect fee. That was from inception um, until about, oh, I don't know, three hot seconds after I resigned from the board. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, um, pretty interesting how quickly companies change from, we're different. We, you know, we're different because we don't charge cross-connect fees. You know, we, wanna, we don't want to screw our customers and rape our customers and charge so much for these things that should be free. And the second, you know big money comes into the business, they look at it and they say, well, you're not, you know, you could be making a killing on cross-connect fees. Why are you not charging cross-connect fees? And then the story gradually changes and all the customers have to start paying for cross-connect fees. I saw that literally happen at QTS while I was working there. And it made me start to scratch my head and think to myself, hmm, you know, the 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 storyline that we were told of this mom-pop business um, that was all about the customer 
quickly changed after the private equity money came into the business. <laughs> yeah. I just had lunch today out here on the island with a good friend of mine who runs a major transatlantic submarine cable system. And we were talking about this and he knows me from back in those days. And he knows all the things that I'm working on because he's a customer of mine today, <clears throat> excuse me, in some of my uh, new facilities. And he was telling me about um, how he literally cannot exist in some of these uh, these neutral colos today in New York because of the cross connection fee. And he was telling me what the rates are. And he said, I will not go there. I cannot be there. I will not deliver services there. And I thought about that going all the way back to the beginning when I sat down and devised the formal, you know, LX, meet me area, meet me room business model. And I consciously decided not to charge a monthly recurring fee at all. Nothing, not $5, not $25, nothing. Because I knew that the rate per meg of transit was dropping like a stone. I remember when I was at WorldCom, it was 1800 bucks for a T1 or whatever. So like a meg and a half. And then I saw Cogent, you know, dropping it down to 10 bucks a meg. And I said, it's going to 10 cents. And guess what? It is 10 cents. So I realized that if you imposed a, a fee uh, for connecting between two passive patch panels that share the same space, you know, same rack space, same two racks away, whatever, that at some point, your whole business model of fee structure will be diametrically opposed to the direction that the cost per bit is heading in. So you can never be the reason why you are your own obstruction for your own tenants to do business in your space. And I also say that, say that again, great, say that very line again, say that very line again, because I think that needs you, to sink into every single person listening to this podcast right now. You cannot be your own obstruction to your own tenants doing business in your space. And that's Amen. exactly where that's exactly where the industry is right now in any facility that's charging across the things. And that's not coming from me. That's coming from them, the tenants, the network operators who, you know, look, I'm a network operator. That's where I came from. I came from the carrier world and I became a real estate guy and understanding real estate to protect them, really to protect myself. I knew what I needed. I need to get circuits turned up, not be hassled, not wait forever and not get, you know, charged out the wazoo for it. And I created a room, a facility, a place, a haven to, to do that, to make that happen in. And I created everything around it, you know, the products and the, like I said, the, the pricing, the order form, um, even the marketing, the branding, the awareness, you know, carving out that whole definition of what a carrier hotel and a meeting room is from the broader hosting and colo and data center universe, which is very broad, even includes towers. Um, that what, what meeting rooms are is very specific and the price per bit of service drops continually. Um, and the more that it, you know, it does, uh, the more that, and then listen, I came out of the local loop world. I hated local loops. I couldn't stand waiting months to turn up a circuit between two floors in the same building. And that was the original problem to solve. But then how could I then bring all those networks into my room to tell them I was going to solve that local loop problem and then reintroduce the same fee for a jumper that goes five feet didn't make any sense it still doesn't make any sense i mean yeah it's a lot of money sure once you have everybody in the room and they're all bolted in and they can't go anywhere they're hostages and you can extort them but that wasn't my you know dna i'm not i'm not that guy you know that's what happens afterwards uh, unfortunately as you said and as we've seen many times over uh, but there is the opportunity to create new facilities 
even in a lot of these existing markets that bring back the old model, the, the one that works. Um, it's just very hard to change uh, critical mass once critical mass has been established. Related to that, I'm curious what your thoughts are around OpenIX, right? OpenIX came out a number of years ago. I, for one, was thinking that that was going to be a paradigm shift in the industry uh, and change the, you know, the obscene fees for CrossConnects. Um, and yet it hasn't. And there's a lot of people who have jumped on the bandwagon and leveraged it as a, uh, a buzzword and, you know, OpenIX certified facility and whatnot, but it hasn't really shifted where a lot of the major interconnection is occurring in these tier one markets. What, what are your thoughts on how that's evolved and is evolving? Uh, first of all, you know, I was a member of OIX and I give them a lot of credit for doing it and starting it, but let's just really understand where it came from. Right. Originally they were talking about it being um, standards, creating data center standards and interconnection standards, which I think has a lot of merit because I've created essentially default standards for neutrality uh, myself. That's where I came from, right? I didn't need rules. I created rules that were basically the definition of fairness. And it worked. It was called Telex, and it worked, you know, really well. And <clears throat> we had a great team of people that all believed in the same thing, and we made it happen. And I saw that in, as, in a broader sense with the whole OIX group and that movement. And then there was a group of network operators that all were being subjected to the same things and they all had the same feeling about it. They didn't like it. And um, that's really where it came from. Standardization on the technical specifications obviously is very helpful. But really what it came down to, as you noted, was cross-connect fees. I think ultimately what happens is, you know, critical mass begets critical mass. And once it's created, it's very hard to move, as I said. Um, and people create a new rut. <laughs> they used to be in the rut of local loops and ordering OC48 hubs and just ordering up circuit, you know, hot end links off of a, a built hub because it was convenient. It cost a fortune, but, you know, that was just the way to do it. There was no passive meet point. And then after the passive meet points were created, people went into those because it was better. Then that just became the way it was done. And now there's been so many people born into this industry that they don't even remember what, PDM optical hubs work, um, and they just order off of a provisioning system that was built around CrossConnects in a meet me room. It was a whole concept that didn't even exist, you know, when I first started. Um, so they're stuck in that mode, and their monthly recurring, you know, their OPEX just goes up and up and up and up, and it it it's a margin killer, you know. The PNL, whoever the GM is running that PNL, is saying what, you know. In New York, some of these monthly cross-connect bills are way north of a million bucks. That's just a pure margin killer. So the OIX guys came together, and they're, for the most part, I think, coming out of the Nanoc community, which is very good at organizing. They organize committees, subcommittees, and working groups, and conferences, and they're just really good at it. And they're very smart. And um, I, too, you know, saw that same sentiment coming through. And I thought that, you know, let's see what happens anyway. They're going to put pressure on some of the big guys, um, to normalize fees. I think what happened was that some of the really big guys behind it got better deals because they're buying in volume, so they get volume discounts, and they're entitled to that, right? Um, but it didn't really change 
um, the whole industry and make it go back to the way it was. Because let's face it, you know, the cross, the monthly recurring cross connect fee is a revenue line item. Okay. For these colo businesses. And it's a ton of margin and it's a ton of their revenue and they're not going to get rid of that. Um, and it's attrition. I think, you know, the, the sun rises and sets and days come and go and weeks pass and months pass. And at the end of the day, you're a service provider or whoever you are and you need to sell and you need to hit your numbers and you need to grow. And that's just the cost of doing business. So you bake it into your, uh, you bake it into your fee structure and you pass it on to the customer if you can. And I think really ultimately that's one of the big issues is that these cross connect fees, particularly in sub C where <laughs> I'll just go back to that one where you can't, you just can't find that kind of margin in a, transatlantic 10 gig circuit you can't it, it isn't there it doesn't exist you know a transatlantic circuit that's only a couple grand cannot absorb 500 dollars a month in a cross current fee how is the community not revolted and actually can't. it's it's what i was saying before if every if it was easy for everybody to just pick up and walk across the street they would have but they can't because they're literally bolted into the floor and the fiber that they use most of them it isn't their own and it's been built in in bundles by other people into a particular place that has to do with rights of way and POEs and manholes that take a very long time to negotiate and secure the rights for and get built in the first place. And moving that is difficult. Um, you know, one of my projects in New York, 325 Hudson Street with neutrality, it's the first building that we bought. Um, I bought it because of so many of my former Telex customers begging me to do something in New York to help them. So um, I partnered with the Merrimar and we acquired 325 Hudson Street. And the reason why I liked the building is because I knew that the flag subsea system uh, terminated both north and south cables in there. Really great building. Um, and so we acquired a building with Jamestown and we built a media room and we brought in uh, over 12,000 strands of dark from um, you know, all the major franchisees in ECS in New York and Empire City Subway, which is the main subduct for fiber in New York. Um, and we have a fantastic meet me room and we're growing and we don't charge any monthly recurring cross connect fees. And, you know, it just takes time for these network operators to move. So the first thing that they need, Sean, is a viable alternative. And that's not like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. You know, you don't leave one facility that charges you a high MRC to jump, go into another one that charges you a little less, but then in a couple of years, it'll be just as high. Uh, the convenience or, or the inconvenience and the pain of moving isn't worth it. Um, you have to go to a place that you trust that's going to be a long-term environment. You want a long-term agreement, but probably more than anything else, you need to know that the other networks that you're already connected to are already there, so it's just easy for you to move over, but nobody really wants to be the first. So it's kind of hard to play one off the other and create a whole new facility like that when the existing facilities, like 60 Hudson, have literally 20 years of history now, 20 years of growth on stacked on top of, on top of, on top of, you know, one more submarine system, one more long system, one more metro system. And, you know, networks go to where networks already are. That's how critical mass works. So they, the revolt, you know, is short-lived, you know. So it's wholehearted, but short-lived because there's really nothing that the network operators can do themselves. See, they themselves are, are network operators. They're, they're carriers mostly um, or content providers or whatever, but they are not neutral by default. 
So they can't go create their own facility and say, well, this is where I'm going to be, because if they did, they'd be the only one there. And they can't go create it and get everyone else to follow them because the others won't trust them because they're not neutral. So they need a neutral operator to create it that they all know and trust. And then they'll feel safe and, and confident investing the resources, the time, the energy, the capital into engineering, provisioning their networks to move to another place and create a new home. And it's still going to take years. So a lot of people don't have the attention span. They don't have the patience. They're not afforded the, uh, the, the gift of time um, to, you know, the luxury of time to be able to, to do that. And then really at the end of the day, Sean, what happens? Most of these people just have a job, right? They work at a company and they're fighting real hard for this, but it's such a huge mountain to climb straight up. And they will probably never even see the end of this. Uh, in their lifetime, or at least their career, their job at that company, because they're probably going to move somewhere else. And they weigh that. And I've gone through this with a lot of people, right, the psychology of it. Um, but it eventually, you know, it, I've seen a lot of the network operators take a stand and make a move and say, I'm not going to go there. Um, at least with us in New York, uh, some of the customers that we've picked up are, you know, turning the battleship and moving uh, to do most of their interconnections or as many of them as they can, you know, in the facilities that are most economically advantageous for them. I mean, that's just a natural thing. And this is, you know, supply demand. We're going to put a product out on the street that's superior to the others that are out there. Um, and people are eventually going to come and buy. Uh, it's just that in this business, there's very long cycles. And, you know, as I said, it takes a long time to plan and execute a big network move. Um, and then, you know, the default is, well, we just still need to get stuff turned up. So we're just going to keep doing it where we are. And they just keep digging a deeper hole in that monthly burn. That makes a lot of sense. So stepping backwards a little bit after, after Telex. So you, you exited in 2008, right? Yeah, that's correct. We, uh, we sold the business in October of six GI. We, um, we closed the deal with digital realty trust. In December of '06, we acquired MYC Connect at 111th Avenue in February of '07, and then uh, I stayed till March of '08, and that's when I resigned. One of the questions I have for you, which I think I may have already asked you, but I'd love to get you to, if you if you can answer this, because I bet and I wonder if any NDAs you signed back then would still be apply today, but. How the hell did you get digital to agree to Telex being the exclusive meet me meet me room provider uh, in the nine some odd properties that 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 yeah. happened in? Because what what I saw, what it's worth for what I saw was the aftermath of that and the yeah. the fighting going on between the Telex and, and digital in those properties, um, which I always scratch my head wondering what what executive was able to dupe these real estate guys into thinking that this would be in their best interest long term and it turns out it was well you. <laughs> yeah yeah so um i guess there's a couple ways you could look at it and you know there's there was it's all time and place right like why did they do that then and like looking back on it, it's like oh it didn't make any sense telex was a phenomenal company and a great brand um back then you know Everybody liked us. Everybody knew us. Everybody wanted to do business with us. Everybody wanted to come to our customer events, the CBX. Everybody wanted to come to our parties. You know, 
it was, um, those were good times. You know, our customers loved us because we treated them right. And we did things to help them grow, generate revenue. We introduced them to people. I mean, we had probably one of the most successful telecom industry events, you know, anywhere. Um, we created the one-on-one meeting system. It didn't exist before we did it for CVX. I actually exported the code that I created that I had my IT director create for the one-on-one meeting system um, for our CBX, our customer business exchange event, which we started at 60 Hudson, in, what, or our what, office actually, and then did the one it, on ended one. up at Cipriani. The one-on-one meeting system was simply a way for anybody to register for the event, and then they could go onto the system and see who else was registered and request meetings, 20-minute uh, tw- slots. And we blocked out uh, three hours, and we had these highway tables with numbers and a moderator. And they would literally say, okay, move to your number two meeting, move to your number three meeting. And everybody would have a little calendar printed out and hand it to them when they showed up with all their meetings scheduled at our event. And we were the COLA, like we're the, we're the landlord. So every network that had a table and a sign in alphabetical order on the floor, if you had a table and a sign, that meant that you were a physical network at Telex today. This was unlike going to any other industry conference where it's all random. And you don't know who this person is. You don't know where they are. I hated that. So I created this customer business exchange event to literally bring the people behind the networks all into the same room at the same time so that they could actually meet each other and transact and know that if they decided to do a deal and bought and sold a circuit or minutes or IP or whatever, that they could actually get it turned up the next day with a cross-connect that didn't cost them any more. That was so huge. That was so impactful. I had so many people tell me that this is their best selling day of the whole year. And it was international. We had people fly in from Europe. We had people fly in from as far away as Hong Kong, from Brazil. I mean, when, we, when I left, the event was up to over 1,000 people. This started in my conference room with 30 people. And, um, you know, it was a hugely successful event. And it was a one-day thing. You get in, you see everybody, you have your meetings. We had uh, food the whole day, amazing food, you know, at Cipriani. It was great. And um, open bar. And then we'd have uh, a party at the end of the day somewhere downtown. We did it on Stone Street or South Street Seaport or whatever. And, I mean, everybody loved it. And then, of course, we bought 56 Marietta Street in Atlanta, the Carrier Hotel. Um, And, you know, here I am coming down there from New York. And I had already sort of coached the prior owners on how to do these little meetings. They called them lunch and learn and meet and greet. And I got to know the tenants um, because I just knew I would, I wanted to buy this building. Eventually I would. Um, I wanted all the tenants to get to know me and not sort of be scared that somebody from New York just bought their building and it worked great. And we were doing customer events down there. Um, And, you know, for just being a, a company, that had New York and Atlanta, just two sites. Granted, New York and Atlanta are two pretty good cities. I mean, New York is obviously worldwide known. And um, we had a great brand. And I think that had a lot to do with the digital deal because they did not know how to run Meet Me Rooms. They're a REIT. And they did not understand Meet Me Rooms. They did not understand cross-connects. They did not understand tech support. Um, At that time, all that type of revenue was not readable revenue. You know, this is well before... Uh, the core site, no action letter, and, you know, the whole shift to REITs for Equinix and everybody. So they needed they needed to work with somebody competent in the space. 
and not just competent, but expert, well-known, great brand, uh, you know, contacts with all the network operators, the right model. Um, and that certainly worked, you know, in our favor. Um, because back then, I mean, keep in mind, I mean, how many really well-known neutral colo operators were there doing Meet Me Room Cross Connects back in 2006? Not many. It was a handful. Um, and we had had really a long-standing relationship, you know, in, in sort of a exploratory get-to-know-you type of relationship with GI Partners. And there was there was clearly in a relationship between GI Partners and Digital Realty. And then after GI bought Telex, there you go. Um, so it, it, it was a good fit. Um, and again, I was there. I was directly involved in spearheading the industry at the time and, you know, making it known for what it is and what it wasn't and you know, all that branding and, and marketing promotion on top of the products that we had created and pioneered, you know, in the industry um, and in New York, you know, and not just, you know, cross connects. Um, but the whole process of everything, shipping, receiving, tech support, you know, the customer events, putting together deals. I mean, oh, wow, it was, it was elaborate. Um, it was intricate. When did you get into... We brought that to digital. When did Telex get yeah. into 200 Paul? Because that must have been pretty early on, too. That was the same transaction, the, the digital realty transaction. Gotcha. So what we acquired a 10 meet me room, some digital realty on the long-term master lease, 200 Paul and 1100 Space Park were part of it. You know, I had a deal with John Wilson to buy those two buildings and I had beat digital on 56. They didn't like that. And I was about to beat them on 200 Paul and 1100 Space Park, but um, the guys that owned it, they couldn't take cash, believe it or not, because they were incorporated in the Isle of Man and the tax would have been heavy. So digital ended up getting the deal because they could give them units in the REIT. I didn't have a publicly traded stock <laughs> to do that with. So I learned a lot uh, about raising capital and deal structures going as far back as that. Um, you know, living in both worlds, learning how to get these things financed, spending a lot of time raising money, um, and also spending time in the industry itself and in the business itself, building the product and doing the deals, really, with the customers. Um, I would have loved to have bought 200 Paul. 1100 Space Park. And ultimately, we got their meeting room. So that was good. I wanted to build a national standard for um, carrier to, you know, meet me room carrier to interconnection. And that's ultimately what Telex did. When, when I left, we had, um, we had the 12 sites. Um, they were building Clifton and they were doing a deal in Dallas, but I don't really count those. They kind of happened after I left. So, but when I left Telex and we had 12 meeting rooms, you know, in the major cities in the U.S., we were by far the largest meeting room operator in the U.S. When, no when did things shift from we don't charge for cross-connects in our meet-me room to definitely charging for cross-connects? Well, that was a healthy debate while I was on the board there after GI had come in. I mean, it, the, the conversation started like almost immediately. You know, why aren't we doing this? Equinix does and so on. And I'm like, why would you want to, you know, I don't know, um, give up your strategic advantage, <laughs> I thought, um, in the market and winning deals by not charging that fee um, and then charge that fee and then basically put yourself on the same level as them where then it just becomes a, well, you know, who's got the lower cross-connect fee. And I just said, that's not my model. That's not my way. Um, you know, I don't want to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, that just kept coming up along the way. You know, the same conversation kept coming up until 
ultimately I was not going to go along with it, but everybody else was. So I said, okay, you know, fine. I have plenty of other things to do. Um, I'm happy. I'll move on. I'm going to go somewhere else, do something else, start something else. So I did. And it wasn't long after I left. You got your hands involved at this point in like a dozen different projects. Um, but yeah. before we go there, one of the questions I'd love to pick your brain about is the where did the peering exchange come from? Like, what was the impetus of that? At Telex, you mean? Yes. Okay. Um, I never wanted to be in the IX business either. I totally get it. And I think that they're essential, particularly today, more so than ever. At the heart of any meeting room, there has to be an internet exchange, but it has to be professional. It has to be supported. Um, you know, it's got to be real. And, um, you know, back then at 56 Marietta Street, the Atlanta Internet Exchange, AIX, was run by Michael Lucking. Um, and he, he used to say this himself. Um, his SLA was catch me if you can. <laughs> and I was like, Mike, you've got like all these networks connected. And I think this is a really important thing. And, you know, we hosted it and gave him a special rate for his little uh, cage that the switch was in. But, you know, sometimes you couldn't get a hold of them. And sometimes, you know, there'd be problems on the switch and, you know, ports would be down or whatever. And the customers naturally by default would then just call us and say, hey, can you help me out with this? Can you do anything? And we didn't have access to the switch. And I said, you know, Mike, this kind of feels like it's part of the building. It's the only one of its kind. It's the only internet exchange in here. A lot of people use it. Um, and I feel like we should get involved in helping you run it, um, or at least just get involved in making it a better service because people associate it with us only because they've got nobody else to go to. So if they're going to come to us, we might as well get involved. And that's how the conversation started. And it it didn't happen like in, in one day or one week or one month even. It, it was a conversation that rolled over probably a couple of years. And then ultimately, as much as I didn't want to get into the ice business, because um, I don't even think it's really a business. I think it's sort of uh, an amenity um, that really helps drive the real estate value of a building. Um, but in any case, we acquired the Atlanta Interchange from Mike. and you know, basically he had a job with us after that. And that led to um, the whole notion of, well, why don't we expand this and, and build internet exchanges and launch them elsewhere? So the first telex internet exchange, Ty, was actually in Phoenix out at 120 East Van Buren, which was after the uh, the digital reality deal. And, um, and then the next one was in New York at 60 Hudson. And here's where it got interesting. You know, out at Van Buren, I'm pretty sure there was already an IX out there, but again, it was sort of like fledgling and not supported. And it kind of, I guess the decision was made that we weren't going to um, try to acquire what was there or we couldn't, or we tried and they wouldn't sell it. I don't remember the details, but we ended up doing our own. Um, and then in New York, the challenge that I had was I was always a best of breed guy. You know, when it comes to network services, I was like, look, um, if somebody else is, wants to do it and they're good at it and that's really their world and they're from there, then they should do it. Um, and I had, I had started, I'd helped start the Big Apple Peering Exchange with Srihari Pandit from Stealth way back when. I think it was like, I don't know, 02 or 03 or something like that. 
And that was, he merged his um, NY6IX into the big ape to do IPv4. And then that was sort of like the house IX for us at Telex at 60 Hudson. But I didn't stop there. I mean, I'm neutral. So I went after Telehouse and I got them to put a NIX distributed node in Telex. <laughs> and I went after PAX. They went after Equinix. I wanted them all. I said, whoever's got an IX in New York, no matter who wins, I want to win. I want you all in here. <laughs> and um, then when Telex did its own, it was kind of like, well, Telex is going to favor its own and and not, you know, promote that same service um, that a few of its tenants were running. And for, for Srihari itself, it was like an add-on. It wasn't critical anyways. Um, but for Telehouse, it was definitely, a, you know, something that they wanted to promote and sell and grow. And that that was problematic, you know. Now all of a sudden we're competing with our customer, and that was my first case of that that I did not like. I was like, I don't like this. Because it's not what we do. It undermines neutrality. Um, it undermines the very essence of the purpose of being in the room. And if there's a best-of-breed service out there um, that's going to see this, and you're providing something which may be inferior, they may choose not to come here, and then that's going to deprive our other tenants of a better service, which really detracts from you know, the facility itself, and um, it's a negative on the real estate value, ultimately, long-term, in my opinion. I swear to God, the last hour alone has been probably most I've learned about our industry in the last couple of years, um, especially those early days, because I've, I've had these conversations with Bill Norton. I've had them with Aaron Hughes. I've had them with dozens and dozens of people. Um, there's always a different slant to it. Uh, it's it's more about you know jumping from company to company, and I think what you're what you've been able to do is describe the actual customer need and why the customer need drove the actual marketplace reality. Which thank you for that. Yes. I hope hope our listeners appreciate it. Um, and I think it speaks to who you are as a person and and you know what you're constantly coming back to. Which I've I've come to appreciate most about your character is just you know you're looking at it from the customer's perspective and yes you have to make money but at what point is is there egregious money being made and at what point is um you know, you're there's a win-win for everybody involved mm-hmm. um well thank you for saying that yeah necessity is the mother of invention there's no doubt about that and i've always thought about this from the perspective of solving a problem and I want to solve problems. I don't want to create them. I'm not looking to create problems. You're if creating I, problems. You know, You're creating problems yeah. for some of the existing right. established. <laughs> Just think about this it, it, to encapsulate what I talk about from the nature of necessity and then how to create, you know, products that solve the problem. Think about this. Verizon bought Termark and they acquired the app in the process. Now, how they came to acquire it and why. It's a whole different story, which we're not going to talk about because that's a whole other podcast. But regardless, the the point is Verizon could no longer be the owner of Tyramark, the NAP specifically, because the tenants, many of them are very important network operators, um, despised Verizon. And because Verizon, you know, is big and they act like big and they're the government and whatever. And other government people don't like being treated like that. <laughs> so Verizon had to sell that and Equinix bought it. Good for them. So look at it like this. 
um, everybody has a special skill set and a place and time for it to be applied, right? So I'm sort of an inception guy to a certain level, and then it turns into something really big later. It'll change because when money gets involved and finance takes over the company, you know, it's happened in so many industries. It happened to GM. It happens. Okay, it's nature. Um, But do you think that Verizon could have started the NAP the Americas? Do you think they could have built that building from scratch and got all those networks to come in there as it being Verizon? No, it's impossible. And that's been proven. That's not just conjecture. That's fact. So for Verizon to come in and buy it after it was up and everyone was in is a complete betrayal of the whole purpose of why everybody went in there in the first place, to get away from that attitude. And it's interesting to me to look at that lesson and that study of them owning that and now it passing hands back to Equinix, which, you know, Equinix is in this business. People might not like them or whatever and complain about them and their pricing and whatever. Um, but, you know, this is what they do globally, and they're the largest, and they're, they're really good at it from that perspective. You know, caring about the customer, is if you don't do that, then you can't keep your customer other in any other situation or reason than they can't leave. You want your customers to want to be there, to love it there, to want to grow there, to in, introduce their friends there, to keep bringing more people there. And that's not what I hear anymore right. about a lot of those places. All I hear is everyone wants to leave and get out. They hate it. And it's just horrible to go to these conferences and just, that's like, like every other conversation. And, you know, things have changed a lot, Sean, in the business, sadly. Well, it's the same with the telecommunications industry. I mean, like when was the last time anyone was thrilled with the service they were getting from CenturyLink, AT&T, Verizon, uh, Zayo, you know, any of the major carrier companies. I mean, you, you have a great relationship with a sales guy or a sales engineer or a engineer within the firm that can help you solve the problem, but there's constant problems that need to be solved. Look, there's always going to be problems. It's all in how they're dealt with. We used to have problems at Telex all the time. UPSs would blow up, DC plants, things would get delivered wrong, you know, circuits, whatever, cross connects were wrong. You got to fix it. You know, but how do you respond? You respond with an attitude, like it's the customer's fault, you know, or problem, or or what? Like even before you know who did it, like you know, it's like the the blame and the onus is on them. Or do you really? Everybody just roll up their sleeves and say, right, let's do this, let's fix this, let's make this work. And I've seen in my career many times, you know, specifically in this industry, a lot of it with the international network operators, but also a lot of domestic ones too. When there's a problem, the the old school telecom people, they all band together to figure out how to get it fixed and get it done. And that was always cool. I always liked that, you know, um, the lengths that people went to, to help others um, to restore service when there were, you know, catastrophes and major outages. And, you know, I could think of several uh, that occurred that I lived through, um, and I know even more happened. So there's still that element in this business, and I, I that resonates with me. That's where I am. I gravitate towards that. I gravitate towards let's get it done. Let's figure out how to get it done. Let's come up with a plan, and let's fix it. Let's put it in, in play, and let's put it in motion, and let's scale it. Let's do what's right and scale what's right. And that brings more people, and that works. And if it's worked for me in the past and it continues to work, now 
Um, it's just that we're living in a time where what we had done once, which was from inception and, you know, was, was brand new. That's all lived the whole cycle now. And now it's, you know, turned into, believe it or not, incumbency. And that's a little scary to me, a little shocking to think that those things that we created from scratch are now what's considered incumbent, which is kind of a bad word, right? Like you're saying with carriers and whatnot. And I understand that there's problems and I understand that there's, you know, um, services and there's demands on businesses for, you know, return to profitability. Of course, um, it's just challenging uh, to find balance between the two, especially in a country like the United States, which is so large, which is really the issue uh, relative to service, you know, universal service, if you even want to call it that, but bringing high speed network services that are reliable and affordable out to everybody is hugely problematic in a country this size. And most people don't appreciate or understand the fact that most of our national infrastructure is socialized. So that that's socialist. Our highways, um, you know, that's all subsidized. Um, but we have national highway systems that everybody uses, you know, including FedEx and UPS. They didn't pay to build the roads. They just run over top of them uh, to deliver their products and services. And um, we don't have anything equivalent um, for network infrastructure. All of the businesses that need to build out the network infrastructure have to do so on an ROI basis that's unrealistic when you compare it to, like, the post office, right, <laughs> or Amtrak, um, you know, or the airlines, which are all subsidized. And uh, it's just not fair, I think, um, to put that type of burden on network infrastructure, which is why you have um, limited coverage in a lot of areas, no coverage in some areas, um, disparate and and very you know lumpy service levels pricing customer service response times i mean it's just all over the place and there's uh, a lot of fear know, though, States, that if, if the government comes in to regulate that you know and regulate that infrastructure and, and socialize it that the the service will become even worse than it already is yeah and i'm by the way i'm not advocating that at all i just want people to have a very clear picture of what the real issue is and then have an understanding of it so that they can focus on solving it instead of this whole piecemeal patchwork incremental build stuff um anyway it's a it's a bigger macro level economic problem when you think about population density and what an effect it has um, on where capital is deployed um, for building out network infrastructure and where it isn't quite frankly and how that's made um businesses and people gravitate towards where network availability is and again that in and of itself is a function of critical mass you know critical mass begets critical mass and networks go to where networks are and people go to where people are and networks go to where people are it all feeds on itself and there you know there's legislation that tries to stop you know open networks um, from being created because it's highly competitive to incumbency which is all fabricated right that's like that's paperwork on top of physical physics reality um, and that's it's impeding progress on rural America um, tremendously, which is really unfortunate. And that's just to you know keep keep top line revenue and margins where they are for certain companies. Um, and it it deprives everybody out there in those areas of the economic development that comes from high speed networks being available, you know, and reliable and at affordable rates. So there's this balance, right? And somehow that that code has to be cracked and it will, it will get cracked. And then when it does and all this great stuff happens 
and a whole new reality will be born and everybody will just, you know, in that place and time, take it for granted. They'll forget what it was like when they didn't have it and they'll only know that they do and they won't know how to live without it. <laughs> so that's the one thing that you know you can count on. Um, and once people have it long enough, they'll they'll take it for granted and forget how they got it, I guess. So we could probably do what we normally do, which is talk for hours on end and go off on numerous tangents. But uh, for the sake of our audience, we've got about 11 more minutes before I want to, I want to pull the ripcord on this thing. Um, I've got a couple questions to ask that are a little bit tangential, but will help both myself and those listening understand you as a person. One is, do you, what is, what is a belief that you have that, other people may think is crazy. I don't know if it's any particular industry. We talked a lot about telecom. Um, I think that um, I think that blockchain is very real, and it's going to fundamentally transform supply chain and the notion of stored value and create new forms of currency. It's already happening, and I I really am totally fascinated by that. I'm involved in a blockchain deal as a result of it, and that's really derived from my um, interest and study in uh, fiat currencies and central banks and money, basically how money works. And I've studied that for a very long time. So, Can you share the name of the company that you're working with, or is that still? The uh, it's, it's the name of the company is Citizens Reserve. Um, I'm not going to go into any great detail about what we're doing, but it's an asset-backed um cryptocurrency that's centralized and it's all based on blockchain and it's for supply chain management uh so we've chosen an asset to start with and we own the company that manufactures the asset let's just put it that way and the token will be it's coins crypto coins or are also referred to as tokens they're sort of synonymous and sort of not um, it's a little bit like Telegon. Um, the token's value will be backed by the, value, the retail value of the asset. Gotcha. So, anyway, that's, if, there, that's... There's, if, if, if anybody's interested, you go go on CoinMarketCap.com and look at how many coins there are. You know, Bitcoin being the most widely known, obviously, and then Ether and there's variants of Bitcoin now and. Um, Tezos and Bancor and others and platforms and there's 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 baskets of tokens of tokens and all sorts of things that are happening and um, it's it's a really exciting space. Matter of fact, it reminds me of the beginning of this industry, the, the network interconnection industry, even the beginning of the commercial public internet. It really reminds me of that. I call it the internet for code. That's what blockchain is to me. And it's it's crazy. It's so new, and and there's these meetups in New York, and everybody's getting together, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and you know who's doing what, and who's saying what, and there's a lot of money to be made, and who's making money, and who's doing this, and who's cool, and who do you know? And man, it's just like the beginning. It's like when when the internet started, you know, and ISPs and 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 web hosting and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's just a lot of opportunity there. And I know that, you know, I'm not, a, not like I'm a fan or not a fan of, of decentralized crypto coins. Um, 
like Bitcoin. I do own Bitcoin. I own Ether. Um, and they've all appreciated a lot uh, since I started buying them. Um, but I look at asset-backed centralized tokens as something um, much more stable and sound and predictable in a way. Uh, not to say that decentralized, there's anything wrong with it. It's just a completely different mindset, I think. And blockchain is really the thing in the middle that holds it all together. I'll have an entire podcast or probably multiple podcasts dedicated just to digging into what the hell blockchain is and cryptocurrency and how it relates to the data center industry and, and whatnot. Um, Cause I'm sure we could probably talk for another couple hours on that topic. So as it relates to our, our industry, the, the data center co-location interconnection industry, what is a common misnomer about this, the, the industry that we work in? Well, Internet protocol is not the internet. A lot of people still get that wrong. Um, Define what that means for for the lay listener. What does that mean? Internet protocol is just a protocol, and the internet is a network of networks. So while a lot of people talk about IP, um, they don't really know if they're referring to a protocol or layer three um, transit. And uh, that's an issue. I think it, it really comes down to terminology. Right. A lot of times I would do these panels, I'd moderate a panel or speak or whatever, and I would start by doing sort of the, uh, the defined terms, you know, disclaimer, like the one-on-one course. Like, this is what we're going to talk about, and I say these words, and this is the definition of the words that I'm saying, just so that you know, um, in case there was any ambiguity or you weren't sure. Um, you may have a different definition of the words I'm using, but... I want you to understand this is the definition that I'm using so that you can actually walk out of here and learn something or not be totally, you know, um, off base as to what the message was. And a lot of that has to do with fiber, you know, um, dark fiber, lit fiber, managed fiber. You know, people don't understand it. It's better now than it was, but most people didn't understand um, the differences. So somebody would say, I have fiber. It's like, yeah, I have, I have fiber. Well, what kind of fiber do you have? Lit fiber. Well, then you don't have fiber at all. You have a circuit. <laughs> it's yeah. not yours. Um, so that's one thing. And again, these are pockets. Some people know that, and they're like, well, of course, that's not a problem. And other people have no clue. Um, and then, I don't know, uh, really the nuances of the, the meet me room business and neutral air connection business, which we spent a lot of time on this call or podcast talking about. Um, as you said, you know, we covered a lot of the in-depth intricacies of, um, you know, supply demand and why buyers go to where sellers are, where sellers go to where buyers are, and, you know, the cross-connect fee and that the whole notion, all understanding of that. I think there's a lot of people that are in this industry today that have just gotten into it recently, maybe. And when I say recent, I mean like within the last 10 years to somebody else that may seem like an eternity, um, but they were born into the industry when everything had already changed. It's, you know, to the way that it is now. So they don't know it any differently. Um, and I'm, I'm in that category. One of the issues. That's, that's why I find these conversations that I have so fascinating because I'm learning the backstory. It didn't, to, it didn't used to be that way, Sean. It didn't. <laughs> it wasn't. And the people that are from that time are either going to, you know, burn out and fade away or um, do something about it. But they're just, you know, the clock's ticking. They'll run out of time, I guess. I hope not. That's, um, there's honestly, new markets, though. 
Let's see. Yep. In part, why I do what I do with this podcast is I want to document as many of those stories as I possibly can before before those people fade away. Yeah, that's cool. And thanks for doing this. And and, and not just with me, but with everybody. I was listening to the one you did with Raul, and that was really cool. And um, you know, I'm, we're talking about broad subjects, and like you said, it's real casual and kind of meandering around, explaining whatever the history and so my thoughts and perspectives, which you know, really all of this is is my thoughts and perspectives on you know, the history that I have from where I was and what I did. Um, and other people, you know, you mentioned Bill Norton. I've known Bill a long time. You know, he's got his history and his perspectives too. Um, there could be people that worked in the same company that have a completely different recollection of what it was, you know. So getting all the stories down is kind of cool, uh, but there are lessons to be learned, I think, in the history of how things, you know, got to where they are. You know, why is it here? How did it get here? <laughs> um, you know, that's important to learn. I've deconstructed a lot of that in studying patterns to decide and, you know, to build my own um, path forward for finding locations, basically, to create new meet points, like the one I did in Canada in Moncton um, Fiber Center. Um, that's pretty recent for me, but I just basically used all the same skills that I had acquired, you know, back in the early 2000s. Um, and that's a really cool story for another podcast. Yeah, right. Um, well, you just hit on one of the next questions that I had for you, which is what is one of the most influential pieces of advice that you received when you were young working in the industry? I guess a piece of advice would be that um, when you're dealing with networks, um, you always deal with certainty, meaning is the network actually here? right? Is it live? And we still live by that code. Back in the early days, a lot of people didn't adhere to that. And they kind of just made up whatever, said whatever, and said, yeah, 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 they're here. And it set, it set poor expectations, you know, with buyers, which always were met, went unmet and then led to bad experiences. So um, certainty with knowing that something's there physically or can be done um, and not you know, not conveying that to others, um, or at least spending the time to explain the where the details where everything is in the process, and that could take time. You know, a lot of people just want instant gratification, but there's usually a lot that goes behind something, and in relative to the details. And again, Sean, that's the difference between physical facilities that exist today that are already a critical mass where you could just assume everyone's already there versus facilities that are being created, like born from nothing. And it takes a long time to pull the pieces together. So yeah, I, uh, you know, somewhat related. One of the biggest peeves I used to have, and part of the reason why um, I became who I am, is because I, I remember a sales rep working for a company that will remain unknown was walking through the building, and a client was asking, "Will so and so on net in this building?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can access anyone you need out of this building. It's the internet, right?" And you know, in theory, yes, you know, anyone can access anyone, but do they have that physical presence inside the building? Do they have the right. infrastructure there to support the client? Right. And that's it. Stopping to answer that question and taking the time to do that and helping a client understand what the hell it is that's that's physically there and what services are are available there and knowing that, it just blew my mind when I was first starting out in the industry, how few owner operators even knew the answers to those questions. 
That's um, exactly that's that's exactly my point. So I learned this. I sort of inherently had it in me not to you know uh, deal with local loops because yeah, you can get a hub and get a circuit anywhere, but that's the problem we were all trying to avoid in the first place. <laughs> so when you bring people in the room, you say this is who's here, which is how I came up with the whole design for the patch panels behind the glass with the P-Touch labels, which is, you know, the meet me area design that I've used since Telex and I've replicated that in Netrality, Colo ATL, Fiber Center, 1025 Connect, NJFX, all the various ventures I'm partnering. Well, let's, and, let's uh, end on that note, man. What, what are all the different things that you're involved in and, you know, let people know how, if they want to get a hold of you or they want to find out more about what you got going on, how can they do that? Uh, sure. So, yes, yeah, so I just mentioned uh, the names of the, the different colo businesses that I'm a partner in. Um, and I, I created my own personal holding company about a year ago um, to hold my interests in all of those. So it just sort of manages my life better. It's called Newbie Ventures. And you could just go online, look it up and contact me through that, through the site. Um, and I've been involved in those other ventures um uh, I guess 1025 Connect on Long Island the longest. Started that in 07, so it's been around a while. Um, that's basically a mid-span meet point for submarine systems that land on Long Island before they get to Manhattan, before they get to 60 Hudson, essentially, or 1118. And they can do breakouts from there and bypass the city and go down to New Jersey, down to NJFX, which is um, another venture I'm a partner in. Um, and they're, you know, they're all relatively the same. Um, Netrality obviously is the biggest now with uh, seven buildings and over three and a half million square feet. And we've acquired um, several really great carrier hotels, starting with 325 Hudson in New York uh, that we acquired with Jamestown. We bought 1102 Grand in Kansas City, 401 North Broad in Philly, um, 717 South Wells in Chicago, 1301 Fannin in Houston. And then most recently, we bought 210 North Tucker and 900 Walnut in St. Louis from Digital Realty Trust actually so that's going well that's pretty cool um again carrier hotels meet me rooms i'm just doing the same thing i've been doing since telex and all these cities um need that uh they they all want somebody to come in and create a meet me room and organize it and um i'm also a partner call atl in atlanta uh down there with tim kaiser at 55 marietta street um a city and neighborhood i know really well and um you know in all of these facilities there are no monthly recurring cross-connect fees. That's a constant. Um, <laughs> oh, and I forgot to mention Fiber Center. I did mention a little bit up in Moncton, New Brunswick, in Canada. The uh, Hibernia Express Cable, which is now GTT, of course, um, I brought that in um, out of the, the little hut that they were in. And we've created a, you know, an international meet point. We're actually the closest neutral colo in North America to Europe, which is pretty cool. So that's a little bit some of the things I'm doing in this space. Do you ever do you are you active on Twitter or any of those forums? Yeah, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and I I promote the stuff that, you know, my entities, the various entities I'm a partner and invested in are doing and then I have my own stuff that I put out a little bit. I used to write a lot. I wrote a whole carrier hotel meet room series. Um I used to write an article a month. For different industry magazines for years and i kind of stopped doing that and i don't speak as many conferences anymore either um but yeah I, I use social media i use twitter and linkedin i'm not on facebook though so 
don't try to look for me there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll add uh, a lot of that stuff in, in the links from the conversations that we cool. had into the show notes. Um, yeah. And I'll take this and push this out to all the people that follow me um, as well. Once it's posted. Cool. So the last question I have for you before we take off for, uh, for the rest of the day here is, do you love data centers? I love data centers. I love carrier hotels more, but I do love data centers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Hunter, for taking the time. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Anytime, man. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.